Today's scripture is Luke 8, 40 through 56. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of a synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his home, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman came, oh, I'm sorry, and when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear. Only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You guys can take a seat. <clears throat> Thanks, Allison. <clears throat> well, good morning again, everybody. Uh, my name's Sean, if I don't know you. Um, I'm the lead pastor, teach pastor here for Redemption Peoria. Redemption Peoria is part of Redemption Church, which is one congregation, nine, di- nine different congregations uh, as one church spread out throughout the state of Arizona. Um, and we'd love to help you navigate any of that. I kind of rushed through that, so I'm sure you have some thoughts and questions if you're new love to help you answer those things. We'll be out by the Connect desk. I will start with this just to, to kind of say before I talk about our series and where we're going. Uh, I just, I felt like I was driving. I just wanted to say this, shout it from the rooftops. I love where we live. Um, I love the valley. And whether you're in like Glendale and it's kind of the greater Phoenix area, Peoria, Goodyear. I mean, like just to get snow and like, but we're not in a, like a polar vortex like they got uh, up there. It's just a cool, and you know what? Like let them say, I'll take me some 130 degree summers, right? Because somebody invented AC and that's a beautiful thing. Uh, and like the Cardinals are terrible and the Suns are terrible and the Diamondbacks are terrible. Um, but we got 1993 when we had Sir Charles and 2006 when we had Nash and 2001 we won the, the, uh, uh, the World Series. Yeah, I don't really like baseball. So yeah, that's all right. And we were so close in 2006, Fitz caught that, scored, we think we're going to score with a steal, I just, I mean, I love the valley, I love it, I love where we live. Listen, before you clap, listen, here's something to clap for. Listen, there ain't no earthquakes, 
There ain't no hurricanes. There ain't no tornadoes. When we get rain, we welcome it. You know what I'm saying? I could go on and on and on. Okay, now we can clap for Phoenix. Okay. I love, I just, I love it. I love living here. I will never, ever move anywhere else. Um, now the Lord's going to do something, but. Um, go to somewhere like, yeah, somewhere really cold, I'm sure. Um, all right, well, here's, here's the deal if you're new. We believe the best way to teach the Bible is verse by verse, chapter by chapter. So all last year, we went through the book of Ephesians, okay? And we're going to take little moments where we do different things. We're in a certain series right now where we're looking at the Gospels with the intention of studying the person of Jesus. As love walks among us, walked among us as humanity, Jesus, the perfect human, we want to look at what it means to follow him. Just so you're aware what we're going to do over the course of this next year. Let me kind of just lay this out. Next year, we're going to, or next week, I'm sorry, next week, we're going to take a break from love walked among us, and we are going to set up um, what is in the church calendar, a season of Lent, okay? Now, there's a lot to unpack there. Some of you grew up Catholic, and so you're like, oh, no, what are we getting into? We've talked about Lent before. There's some beauty to it that we want to kind of celebrate with the church historically as to why we're going to do that. So next week, we're going to talk about what that means, and then we'll jump right back into um, the Love Walked Among Us stuff. Easter is the 21st, uh, and we're going to give you some times and all that. We're going to do three services. I'm not going to give you too many details. I'll lay that out next week. But I will say this. The week after Easter, we're going to take a Sunday and talk about mental health, which is depression and anxiety. We feel like that's really important. And that time is going to be between Love Walked Among Us and going into um, a a five-week series on Jonah. It'll be actually four weeks for us as Peoria congregation, but as a church, five weeks on Jonah. And then we're going to spend, I think, 10 weeks in Philippians and 12 weeks in Exodus to finish up the year. So that's going to kind of be the way that we're going to operate. It's a far more of a flyover, 10,000 uh, view uh, of Philippians that's, you know, as opposed to Ephesians where we went, you know, some, some weeks we only had like two verses. So that's kind of the layout right now. Some of that might be changed a little bit with uh, breaks in between, but that's going to be the general layout. I say that because next week is important if you're questioning as to what we do with Lent and all that stuff. We want to lay that out. We've had some questions about our service times and all that. So we'll give you some info on, on what that means. So here's, here's where I want to start with the Love Walked Among Us. I've tried to set up um, reasons why this series is so important. And I think this is probably a good place to start. It's obvious, blatantly obvious for anybody who operates in the Western world. It's just so easy to hate uh, in our culture. I mean, at least in the 1800s, it was extremely difficult to hate someone because you either had to know that person or somebody had to be in direct correspondence with that person. So you, you hear firsthand. Now we just like hate out of nowhere. We, it's not even that we just read a blog or an article. We read the headline of the article and all of a sudden we just hate a people group. It's so insanely easy to hate. And at the same time, um, what we've done is it's made it difficult to love on really high levels. We've watered down our elements of love. And so what we have is we have these short views of people, things, ideas, or philosophies. And because of these short views, we make these decisions, and a lot of them are inaccurate, honestly. A lot of them are, are, are truly inaccurate. And if you spend time with someone, you feel, whether that be in the LGBT community, the Muslim community, the Mormon community, the Jehovah's Witness community, whatever community, even those outside of the, spend time with the Christian community, they immediately go, wow, I thought you were blank, but you're blank. You see this all the time if you can operate outside of your circles. And and the reason that's important is, as we look at Jesus real closely, 
Not just like study him in the Greek, which we're trying to do as we go through this series, or look at all, but we're looking at his mannerisms, his facial expressions, how he interacts with people. What is he doing in that moment? Here's our goal with this series. If you're going to hate Jesus, we want you to hate the Jesus that is truly Jesus, okay? And if you're going to love Jesus, we want you to love the real Jesus. We want, to see, we want you to see, and myself included, all of us as a church want to see Jesus for who he is, who he really is as a person as he walked among us. And so that's what we're doing. We're looking at the Gospels, taking different sections um, as, you know, uh, different than maybe the first book we went, we went through. We went through the Gospel of Mark all the way through. This is different. We're di- taking different sections. So today we're in Luke chapter 8. We're going to start in verse 40. So if you haven't opened your Bible there. You can do that now. Let me read verse 40, and we're going to dive right in. It says this, Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. Just some context if you're not aware. Um, Which just just a moment. um, This is really cool. Uh, We're we're going to study the Bible right now. Some of you have been frustrated with yourselves that you didn't get to read the Bible. This Okay, you didn't, but we're going to do it right now. We're going to study the Bible. We're going to read the Bible. We're going to look at it. Just be grateful for this moment. Yeah, all right, I'm excited. Um, So now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. So the context is this. Um, Luke is, I just got done telling the story about Jesus healing this man who had uh, demons in him. And the people in that town said, get out of here, we're scared, okay? He travels, he returns, and this crowd welcomes him. So that's where Jesus had just come. Uh, This is actually just on the heels of um, kind of Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. And verse 41 says this, as he's returning, the crowds are welcoming him. And there came a man named Jairus, who's a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. So let's kind of lay the tone of what we have right here. I think the tone that Luke's going to give us with this man named Jairus, who's a ruler in the synagogue... So just so you understand the cultural context here, there's not very many high, I mean, we we think government uh, kind of positions because we tend to be far more um, uh, nationalistic than religious in our culture. So you got to think high form of government, right? This is somebody, this this is a senator who is now coming to Jesus, that kind of position. He's a ruler in the synagogue, and I think the tone that Luke wants to give us is desperate. It see, this, this guy is coming, very similar, if you're familiar with John chapter 3, like Nicodemus came, but Nicodemus was scared. This guy ain't scared. Nicodemus comes at night, this guy's not scared. He's coming in daylight, coming to Jesus, he doesn't care. And if we know anything about the Jews and the Pharisees, the other rulers of the synagogue are not going to be happy with Jairus here. I mean, look at some of the words here, just to see desperation. Falling at his feet. He implored, her, implored him. That's the same word, actually. It's the verb form of, of where we get the word Holy Spirit from. It's his only daughter. She was dying. These, this is language that Luke's trying to communicate. Here's the ruler of this temple, comes to Jesus, and he is desperate. His 12-year-old daughter is dying. We don't know from what, but he's desperate. <clears throat> so we pick up at the end of verse 42 that Jesus says, all right, let's go. Because it says this, and Jesus went, and the people pressed around him. So Jesus immediately goes. Remember, the crowd is still there. They're, they're in his space. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. Okay? So just to be clear on, on what we have, Jesus is on his way to go see Jairus' daughter. 
The crowds are pressing in around him, and then all of a sudden the camera pans to this woman, and it quickly tells us about her story. So again, it says this, her story. Uh, There was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. So just so we understand what she is like, this um, hemorrhaging, this hemorrhaging that, that's happening uh, for her would cause, I mean, the equivalent, if you understand anything about like social norms in this day, she'd be like a female leper, okay? She has this blood that's flowing that can't stop. She is, according to Leviticus, she should be an outcast. And so she, she's living in shame here. She's seen many physicians. She's tried to figure this out. And it's been going on for a long time. Interesting enough, and I'm going to connect more of this in a little bit. This has been going on for 12 years, as long as the little girl's been alive, Okay. So there's, there's some tie-in that we'll get to in a little bit here. But, but she's desperate for this. And so uh, that's kind of the way the story picks up. I will say this to understand the desperate part of it. The, the language here, she had spent all her living on physicians. She could not be healed by anyone. Um, just so you understand the context, here's a woman seeing somebody who's here, clearly like healed people. She, when it says she's tried everyone, there are 11. If you read uh, the Talmud, which is kind of the rules for the Jewish people, there are this superstition type uh, cures that this woman would have tried. So when, she's, when, when we talk about Jairus being desperate, the tone of the passage stays there. This woman is desperate. She's tried. Just listen to some of these things. This is one of the things, I'll give you three of them, of the 11 cures for this type of illness that she was uh, uh, to try in the Talmud. She's to take a Persian onions of three pints, boil them in wine, and drink them. And say, as she, as she stands to her feet, arise from the flow. Well, that didn't work. I don't know why. Um, if this does not cure her, set her in a place where two ways meet. Let her hold a cup of wine in her right hand, and let her hold uh, one, and let someone come from behind her and frighten her and say, arise from the flow. And that didn't work either for some reason. Carry barley corn, which has been taken from the droppings of a white female donkey, as long as the doctor says. To carry the ashes of an ostrich egg in a linen bag in the summer, and carry the ashes of an ostrich egg in a cotton bag in the winter. So on and so forth. She's tried everything. Okay? To the point of, let's just be honest, some of these physicians didn't even care about her health. They just wanted her, like, they, they tried some really rough tests in some of these 11 cures. So she's gone through every possible way, gave away all of her money, please heal me. She's desperate. That's the tone that we have here. She's desperate. So verse 44 says this, she came up behind him, him being Jesus, and touched the frim, the fringe of his garment. And immediately her discharge of blood ceased. So, uh, just Jesus would be wearing, according to Numbers 15, like most men in that day. And actually, if you go to the Wailing Wall, you'll see them wear the same thing. These, a white outer robe with these taluses on the bottom. And just so you know, the word there, that's, uh, she came from behind and touched the fringe. Just so we're clear, uh, the word here is actually a middle verb. And when it's, when it's in a middle verb, this certain word, it actually means like, like grab onto or grasp or cling to. It's the same word that's used when Mary sees Jesus in John chapter 20, verse 17, and she grabs onto him. She clings onto him. So there's the element of the tone of desperation. She doesn't just touch it, but all these people are gathering around. She believes, no, I'm gonna, if I can just grab the fringe of his garment, she believes and grabs on to the fringe of his garment and she's healed. The, The blood flow stops. The hemorrhaging stops. What's um, is huge because as this menstrual hemorrhaging go- is going on, she's felt it, what's going on in her body, and Jesus responds immediately with this. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? 
When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. Just as a side note, seems kind of hilarious, right? Because the crowd thinks, they all go, I didn't touch you. They're all pressing around. And Peter goes, Jesus, what are you talking about? Everyone's touching you, right? And so there's something different about what um, this woman had done. Verse 46, but Jesus said, someone touched me for I perceive that power has gone out from me. I'll unpack that in a little bit or not unpack it. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had, come, and how she had been immediately healed. The tone again is desperate. All these people are pressing around. Jesus goes, wait a minute, someone touched me. Peter goes, there's a bunch of people touching you. No, 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 someone really touched me. I felt power come out from me. And she realizes she can't be hidden. She's, she's found out. And so she goes, Jesus, I touched you. This is what had happened. I was healed, this whole deal, okay? Jesus then responds in verse 48. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Okay, so Let's just stop before we get uh, what's going to happen again. The, the passage isn't over. Jesus in this moment is with uh, Jairus, going to heal someone, interrupted now by this woman. This woman then touches uh, the fringe of Jesus' garment. He's obviously being touched by everyone because all these people are around, and Peter notices it. She's then healed. She goes, I'm the one who touched you. Jesus looks at her and goes, your faith healed you. Go in peace. Now, let's just kind of classify what Jesus has done here. Yes, Jesus has healed her physically. But man, also, more than that, Jesus has also healed her like socially. I mean, the outcast that she has, the opportunity to have a family. Most likely this woman probably would be divorced if she had a husband and this happened to her. I mean, it's bad. And now there's a social acceptance that she has. But I would also argue, um, when it says that your faith has healed you in this moment, the same word for healed in Greek, if you're not familiar with this, is sozo. It's the same word we get our word salvation from, soteriology from. That it's your faith has saved you. And when he says go in peace, I think this, and I would argue there's a declaration in this moment, you have faith in who I am. And because you have faith in who I am, you're saved. Physically, I've taken care of you. Societally, I've taken care of you. But, but there's a objective peace now, go in peace that I give you before the Lord. Uh, Eusebius, who's a church historian, actually says there's a statue, or at least when he was alive, it doesn't exist anymore. He records that there was a statue when he was alive of this woman in her hometown because she became a believer. That's what the statue is dedicated towards. This woman in this moment had faith in Jesus, okay? And there's this connection in this moment that we really, really need to see that he calls her daughter. He calls her daughter. We don't know her name. We don't know her history. Just in this moment, she had a problem. She had faith in Jesus, and Jesus heals her. Go and peace, okay? But our passage isn't done. We're going to tie some of this together. Verse 49. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he had come to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and the mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing, imagine them being on the wrong side of history. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. Just the personality of Jesus, just kind of listen. Jesus has just healed this woman, having this moment with this, uh, this issue with blood, healed her, giving her this peace, and then he, he 
you know, if you ever like eavesdrop on someone, you only eavesdrop in on someone that you kind of care about or are interested in. As he's speaking with this woman, one of the servants of Jairus comes and says, don't bother him. She's gone. Don't worry about it. Jesus cares enough to kind of interrupt that conversation and go, wait a minute, relax. Like I've got this believe and she's going to be fine. He, he comforts Jairus in this moment. It's going to be okay. But he's also extremely firm, right? He doesn't let anyone else in the room, especially those who are doubting and don't have faith, who laugh at the fact that Jesus would say she's going to be fine. And so Jesus in this moment has this tenderness about what he's doing. And so what happens in verse 54, uh, you really begin to see this play out in this tenderness. But taking her by the hand, he called saying, child, arise. And her spirit returned and she got up at once. And he directed that someone should be given, something, sorry, should be given uh, her to eat. Verse 56, and her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened, as Jesus always does. Very mysterious in that way. We've talked about that. So here's Jesus. He comes in, and, and this is, Jesus believes she's going to be fine, so much so that it is actually against Jewish law to touch a dead body. So he takes her by the hand to prove She's, she's fine. She's alive, right? I love that. But takes her by the hand. She gets up. And the only word that I can like, use here in, in Jesus' interaction is fatherly. He keeps the, in, the, the, the attention on her. Like the parents are probably losing their mind right now. But as a good father, he's like, breathe. I got this. Go get her something to eat. She's probably hungry. She's been dead, okay? Okay, so go. So go, go and, and, and he's like directing them in this moment. He's just so tender. He's just so tender, okay? And so there's our passage. It's interesting, right? Because it's all these kind of dynamics to it. And so what we've tried to do as we go through this Love Walked Among Us series is is, uh, begin to ask some questions at the end. And one of the questions that I ask is, what is Jesus doing? Like Jesus is always doing a thousand different things. What is he doing? Um, what are we supposed to do with our soul in this passage? And then uh, lastly, what do we do in the areas of mission? How do, we, how do we follow Jesus in this way? So let me start with this. Jesus doing a thousand different ways. Um, outside of just going, tying it into some Old Tef- Testament uh, passage, let me just point out some things that are, I think are really beautiful. Um, uh, Jim and I, the elder here, uh, we're talking about this before service. There's kind of two things that equal everyone out, right? Sin and like terrible events in your life. Sin and terrible, like, it doesn't matter where you are, but these things are going to equal you out. We're all equal. And, and what, I, what I love about what's happening here is here is a man who's the highest form of society, and here is a woman who's the bottom. And both are desperate. And desperation brings you to the feet of Jesus. And so status like, is crazy here because um, he kind of just abolishes it all, just lays down all the stuff. Which furthermore, I think, think there's more as we kind of continue to dive into the passage. It's not just a status, but um, here is Jairus petitioning for his 12-year-old daughter. And here's a woman who has no one to petition for her. And Jesus calls her daughter. Do you see what he's doing? I think Luke is trying to put these stories. And I think the reason he does this is he's putting these accounts together for us to see that no matter where you are on this spectrum, it doesn't matter how rich, socioeconomic class, color, where you're at, there's no status form. You're all falling at the feet of Jesus. We're all falling at the feet of Jesus. And whether you have someone advocating for you or not, Jesus has got you. Jesus has got you. 
So there's, there's, there's some beautiful tie-ins with these stories that I think Jesus is, is uh, declaring here. Even some of the language, the blood flow is so similar to his crucifixion, which we're not going to get into here, but there's some beautiful things that Jesus does. Rather, I would uh, want to spend some time, the most of our uh, time together, at least the remaining time that we have, um, on asking this question then, with this passage, what do we do as we look at Jesus with our own soul? Okay? And there's a few things that pop out that I think are clear, words that appear in the, the text that we can see with the context of what we just read that I think we can begin to understand. And, and, and the first one is this, um, the word desperation, I think is really important. And I think there's two different types of people in the room that need to see this passage and hear that word. The first is this, um, I don't know how much more you think you can take before you believe you need Jesus but I promise that day's coming. Your day of desperation is coming. And so, listen, like Jairus, I'm pleading with you. Lay down your pharisaical garbs, your pride, thinking that you and God are cool because you're a good person and your religious acts, and find desperation. Desire him. Want him. Need him. I mean, I heard a pastor say a few years ago, it's a sin if you're being good and God had called you to be great. That's garbage. Egocentric, Western Christianity, garbage. You think the story's about you, and so you think because the story's about you, you can continue to bring yourself happiness, and therefore you don't need to be desperate. All the while, we find third world Christianity growing in the droves. You want to know why? Because they're desperate. They don't have the comforts of this world to inebriate them to their desperation. But hear me, that mirror will shatter one day, and you're going to find yourself feeling broken, empty, and you're going to know desperation. And I would just plead with you in this moment to prepare now. Prepare now, because you're going to find death. You're going to find hurts. You're going to find pain. It might be your 12-year-old daughter. It might be your blood flow. Whatever it is, that day's coming. And so you can fall on the wall, the the rock and be broken, or the the stone can fall on you and you'll be crushed. So I plead with you, if you are a believer in this room and continue to fall back on your own righteousness, seek desperately Jesus Christ. And if you're not, hear me when I say this, please, 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 please hear me when I say this. You need him more than you know. What you think is bringing you joy and happiness is just eroding you from the inside desperation. But then there's also this other word, this other way that we can use the word desperation. And it is for those of you in this room who really are desperate. And and hear me when I say this, I don't mean just spiritually, like I was just talking about in that way. But I mean like, you are the woman with the blood flow. You are the one with the child who is on the brink of death. Like, you don't know what you're going to do with this family member. You don't know how you're going to handle this child. You don't know what you're going to do in the areas of your vocation. You feel extremely desperate. There's a word that I think is beautiful that sticks out uh, in this, in verse 47. Look at it again. This is, those of you who are desperate, I just, I need you to, like, bomb over your soul. Hear this. She was not hidden. For those of you in the room who feel extremely desperate, like, I don't know what else to do, God. I don't know what else to do. Like, I've tried all these other ways. I, I don't know what else to do. Verse 47, she was not hidden. 
and I know you feel like you're alone, and, and man, I, I think the wrestle of faith becomes so difficult because you believe God can do something and you're wondering, why doesn't he do this? And this has been taken like 10 different ways in the wrong direction. It's just all bad. Here's what we can know in this moment. Uh, Jesus is not looking down on you, kind of just saying, figure it out. But Jesus on the cross is proof that he could have himself stopped the pain and suffering for himself but did not. So if nothing else in this moment, take comfort in that. Jesus could have stopped the suffering for himself. He could have sent a legion of angels to stop the whole thing, but he didn't. And so in this moment, I don't know how to begin to wrestle with what that looks like. I don't know begin to, to how to play all of that out, and it is difficult. I get it. But believe, believe, believe he's got you. The language that I use with my six-year-old daughter is Jesus will always protect you. And immediately people are like, well, wait a minute. But no, no, listen. Jesus will always protect you. In death, Jesus will protect you. In loss, Jesus will protect you. And so begin to redefine what that is amidst your suffering, amidst your desperation. You feel like, God, why aren't you healing me? Why aren't you doing this? Jesus himself took on the Father. Why have you forsaken me? Same mantra, same tone. So just know the language again, those words there are huge. Those four words, she was not hidden. The next part of this is, I think, looking at the person of Jesus and his response to those of you who are desperate in the room. Um, It's the term that I think probably tripped you up as it did for me. Um, And it's a term that not only do I think is really difficult to understand, I got to be honest with you, it feels impossible to understand. I have no idea. Most commentators that I read that when he made this statement um, admitted they didn't know what to do with it. And those who did probably should have admitted they didn't know what to do with it because it sounded crazy. And it's the term, the language, power went out from me. And it's a bizarre statement. And I don't fully know exactly how this plays out, though I will say there are clear pointers to what we can see. And I think it sticks really strong to something we call the hypostatic union. The fact that an eternal God is now a human feeling power come out from from him. And this is not like a a video game. He's at 100% power and then he goes down to 90% power. I don't know how this whole thing works, but but for whatever it's worth, there's an intertwining of Jesus and this woman. Like the Godhead, like his inner twat, like it's, it's this bizarre deal now. And um, from the most unlikely places that I found to identify this, most, one of the most polarizing guys in, in Christianity, John MacArthur, I think he nailed uh, in his commentary on this. Listen to what he says about this, this language, power went out from me. I think this is what I would take away if I was you as you hear this passage and this statement. This is one of the most profound things Jesus ever said. Power had gone out from me, of, of me. What an insight. The power of God is not impersonable. What a truth. It is personable in the nature of God, and when the power of God flows from him to you, he feels the flow. His life pours into us. We feel the power, that infusion of spiritual power into our lives as we see it evidenced in our lives. Do we believe that God feels it? Our Lord experienced, actually personally felt the outflow of his power, his creative power to recreate that woman's insides. God is not impersonable. God is not detached. When God touches a life and power flows, he feels the flow. He feels it. 
No one receives the power of God into his or her life without personal involvement from God. We are saved and the power flows. We are sanctified and the power flows. We are glorified and the power flows. As it is a living, intimate, personal union of life with the living, eternal God, and he feels the flow. This is the end of all magic. This is the end of all superstition. This is the end of all touch the talesman, touch the relic, or touch the TV. This is personal power of God flowing into us. His per, uh, he's personally involved. That, that God is here. He doesn't just end to kind of rub elbows and die for us, but feel the weights of what this woman's going through. That power flows from him to her. So if nothing else, when we don't know what to do with a term like this, I think we can walk away and go, listen, for those of you who are desperate, not just because of Ephesians 4, he feels your desperation. The power of who he is is flowing from him to you. Take heart in that. Take heart in that. And the last thing is this um, that I got to point out in this text, um, which is just a weird deal. Um, It's obvious as we look at the person of Jesus that this dude has no problem with intrusion. Honestly. I mean, he goes from being, coming off the boat, his whole deal is now the crowd comes around him, intrusion. Amidst the crowd, Jairus comes to him, intrusion. Then with Jairus and the crowd, woman comes to him, intrusion. Now talking with the women, the woman, with the crowd and Jairus' posse, Jairus then intrudes again. Like the servant comes and goes, leave him alone. It's not, Jesus is like, no, 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 you're not intruding, you're fine. He continues to welcome it. I mean, we see this, I wrote down just a couple of accounts so you can know it's not just you're asking from Jesus, but he tells you to continue to intrude. Listen to this. At one point he's preaching a sermon. In the midst of the sermon, the, the, the ceiling breaks through. Somebody is let down in the middle of the room and he doesn't go, what are you doing, man? I'm in the middle, middle of Deuteronomy 11. You're interrupting. No, no, he takes this opportunity and he heals the man intrusion it's i'm countless times i'll give you a couple more at one point he's preaching someone in the middle of his sermon yells out in the middle of the crowd teacher tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me i just i was thinking like if i'm preaching and someone yells out, i'd be like dude can we talk about this later like what's going on right but he constantly is making himself available with intrusion. I mean, we see this again with the woman at Simon's dinner party that we covered, Mary, the sister of Martha, the perfume with Jesus, uh, John leaning on Jesus' breath and, uh, uh, breasts on, on uh, John chapter 13, right before the Lord's Supper. I mean, we see this often, over and over. Jesus continues to make himself available. He continues to have this plan, but part of the plan is this intrusion, which is what I, I think is good for us to walk away with. And that's this. Um, If we're going to look at the person of Jesus in this account, it is hard to not walk away and say this this, this person of Jesus, if he is the embodiment of love, love leaves room for intrusion. And if we're going to follow Jesus, and we're going to be a person of Jesus here on this earth for the world to see, hear me, this is important, stay-at-home moms, I know this is difficult, love leaves room for intrusion. Spouses, love leaves room for intrusion. Intrusion is so difficult because you have a plan and now something has to turn to someone else's want, someone else's needs. Classmates, love leaves room for intrusion. Family members, love leaves room for intrusion. Neighbors, 
And Kenneth and I have a neighbor that he literally just parks in front of our house, honks the horn until we come out. I'm not making this up. The kids will come running in. Bill's outside. And every part of me wants to go, what? Like, what are you, like, why? But no, love leaves room for intrusion. And so, so this, in the break rooms, love re- leaves room for intrusion. In the living rooms, when you don't, you just want to be left alone. You just, like, you just want to have your own water cup. That's all you want. <laughs> love leaves room for intrusion. And if we're going to follow the person of Jesus, we're, we're not setting our agenda in such a way, our p- plan in such a way that we are not constantly open to getting knocked off of our own agenda, but we are following Jesus and Jesus shows us love leaves room for intrusion. And hear me when I say this, um, I am a product of intrusion. I am. My upbringing just shows over and over that I was adopted as I intruded into someone's house, they took me in. That was not part of their plan. Being discipled, people taking care of me. I didn't buy my first four cars. I didn't have money. Just the way I grew up, people took care of me. My life, I am a product of intrusion. And what's crazy about that, because of that, I have this crazy guilt, like this debt I have to pay. Um, and, it, and I've tied it with Christ in this really bizarre way. Candace knows this more than most, because what I do is I feel like I'm going to just love and take in as many people as possible, constantly build extra spare rooms so people can live with us, constantly have people live with us, constantly take people in. Now, that's beautiful, right? There's something to that. But, but all those big things as I'm trying to pay off this debt in this weird way and I struggle with it, you know where I struggle? It's when I'm sitting there and I just want to watch the Warriors highlights and, and Titus comes in and he wants to tell me a story that doesn't make sense. And, and listen, in that moment, I'm a father. I'm a father. And so to love my son is to be a student of intrusion. And that's more difficult than just taking someone in my own home. That's far more difficult. It's the small things. Tish Warren calls these, uh, these acts of love. What does she call it? There's a word for it. She calls it ordinary acts of love in her book, uh, Liturgy of the Ordinary, which I would highly recommend. Listen to what she says. She actually makes this quote. Ordinary love, anonymous and unnoticed as it is, is the substance of peace on earth, the currency of God's grace in our daily life. It's when no one knows that you are stepping into a moment of intrusion. It's ordinary, but it's God's grace. These are the moments that will bring peace on earth. These are the moments that will bring shalom. These are the moments that will bring God's kingdom. These are the moments of love. Let's pray. Father, thanks so much for who you are. Thanks for Luke chapter 8. Um, we, we got to look at your word, uh, and it's really cool, honestly. It's uh, something that convicts us and moves us along. Jesus, as we look at you and your personness as you walk this earth, we study you, we look at the way you treat people, you take people by the hand, you, you're interrupted in what you're doing, you care enough to listen in. Jesus, you just you embody love perfectly. And so our prayer as a congregation is that we would follow you in this way. Um, If you blaze the trail, we fail a lot in this, though we are a product of intruding and on your grace, we don't deserve it. Um, But we don't exhibit this to the world at times, to our family at times. So just just help us. Jesus, we need you. We need you to to guide us as we, we take these steps, Uh, not just the big steps, but these small steps where no one knows this ordinary love that's in front of us. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.